Today on Something You Should Know, you probably have never had a milkshake from hotel room service, and I'll tell you why. Then your brain works in mysterious ways, and you're about to discover how. For example, it turns out that when you create a mindset, when you start looking for the things that bother you, you start seeing the things that bother you. And the fascinating thing is, if you flip that switch and you start looking for the good things, you begin to notice more good things in the environment. Also, why irritating people are a threat to your mental health, and what goes on behind the scenes of air travel, and why some people are afraid to fly. I've always been surprised at how many people are put off by turbulence, by rough air, because, uh, you know, from our perspective, from the pilot's point of view, you know, we see it as a comfort and convenience issue, not as a, a safety issue. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. So I'll bet you have at least one really good customer service horror story. I've got one or two myself. Everybody's had some problem with customer service somewhere. And very often at the core of those stories is the fact that the person you're trying to get help from has no authority to solve the problem you have. And therein lies the frustration. Someone who's taken a fascinating look at this is a guy named Stephen Little. Several years ago, he noticed that it is almost impossible to order a milkshake from a hotel room service menu. Hotels just don't have milkshakes on their room service menu for whatever reason. So as he would travel around and check into various hotels when he traveled for business, he made it a point of calling room service and ordering a milkshake. And the conversation would usually go something like, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have milkshakes. And then Stephen would say, well, do you have ice cream, milk, and a blender? And room service would say, well, yeah, sure, of course we do. Well, then why not whip me up a milkshake and send it up to my room? Now, remember, 
Stephen did this hundreds of times over the course of several years. How many times do you think he got a milkshake sent to his room? It turned out in the final analysis to be about 20% of the time. The point of doing this was to show how company policy often makes it impossible for employees to do their job. There is actually no reason not to make that milkshake, but hotel policies prevent employees from giving a customer what he wants. And this goes on every day at millions and millions of businesses. It's bad for business, but policies are policies. And that is something you should know. How can you not be fascinated by the human brain and how it works? Particularly when you step back and see that it sometimes works in very strange and mysterious ways. And I think the more we understand how the brain works, or at least shine a spotlight on it and observe how it works, the better insight we gain into ourselves. And someone who I think would agree with that premise is psychologist Art Markman. Art is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the co-host of a podcast called Two Guys on Your Head, and he is the author of several books, including Brain Briefs, the answers to the most and least pressing questions about your mind. Hi, Art. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. So one of the questions you tackle, which I think a lot of people would be curious about, is (laughs) why we find kitten videos so irresistible. The thing about kitten videos is that they they are this perfect storm in the sense that one of the things that evolution has done is to recognize that infants are annoying in every species. And so what they do to make sure that parents still want to take care of them is they they do things to make them look really cute to the people who are going to take care of them. And so infants of every species have big eyes and they have little little small features and and so we love those and and so what 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 happens is kittens have that that aspect ratio. They have big eyes, very small face, you know, very symmetric. And so what we're doing is getting this evolutionary dose of cuteness. And then rather than having to live life in all of its moments to wait for the one moment that's great, what a kitten video does is it's kind of like the highlight reel for, for football fans. You don't have to sit through the whole game. You just get the, 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 the highlight, the, the really the great part of it. And so what a kitten video does is it, is it takes this extraordinarily cute thing and then just gives you the highlights. And it's, uh, they're absolutely fascinating. So talk about liars, because that interested me, that how we can tell when people are lying, if we can at all. If you go on the internet and you start searching around, you will find all of these tips for catching liars. And a lot of these tips have to do with these unconscious tells that people are supposed to give off when they're lying. So they'll tell you if you look up or down or to the right or to the left, that means you're lying. Or if you make eye contact or if you don't make eye contact or if you hesitate. And it turns out that almost all of those cues, actually pretty much every one of those cues is not a very effective means for telling telling you who's lying to you. So really what the absolutely the best way to figure out if somebody's lying is to follow up with them and ask them lots of questions whose answers they should know if they were telling you the truth. 
So if someone said to you, yeah, well, I took the bus to get to this meeting. Well, what bus? You know, where did it go? What are some of the things that you passed? Where if you actually had that experience, you would actually know the answer to that. And what happens is people, when they when they uh, lie to you, they haven't necessarily prepared the entire world around that. And so it's fairly easy to get people to uh, to trip people up. And there's there are actually really good studies showing that, for example, the, the agents who are trying to catch uh, people who might be lying at customs uh, and, uh, and, and border control at various countries, if they use that technique, they're much more effective at catching people who are lying. But don't, what, wouldn't you have to know the answers to what, what the bus went by in order to catch him in a lie? You might have to know the answers, and certainly if it were important enough, you could go back and check some of the things that they say. But the fact is that what what ends up happening is when you catch people suddenly where you start asking them a bunch of questions to follow up, most people have a really hard time actually coming up with answers to things that, that ought to be at the tip of their tongue if they'd actually experienced the thing. Here's one that, that's uh, always interested me, and I was just talking about it the other day with someone that, that as I get older, it truly does seem that time goes by faster. And, and I think it's a fairly common experience. What is that? So there's several reasons actually that come together for why time feels like it goes faster as you get older. One of them is that a lot of what makes time feel slow is that your brain, when your brain is doing a lot of work to understand a situation, then in the moment, your brain has to, you know, is, is going to, to create lots of memories that will, when you look back on it, become these landmarks that feel like t- a lot of time has passed. Now, when you're young, everything is new. And so your brain is constantly doing lots of work in order to 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 uh, understand the situation and that influences your sense of the passage of time as you get older more and more of your life becomes routine more and more of your life becomes predictable and as a result your your brain is laying down fewer and fewer landmarks that make the time feel like it's gone slowly and that's one of the reasons why a great way to slow time down is to take up new skills to learn how to play an instrument or a new sport or something like that, or to uh, expose yourself to new classes, because what that's doing is forcing your brain to, to set up a bunch of, of new landmarks. Now, even if you do all of that, you're not going to slow the feeling of the passage of time completely because there's another piece of it as well, which is that your brain is also taking into account how much other stuff you have learned about your life so far. So if you think about it, when you're six years old and then you go through uh, another year, that year occupies a tremendous amount of space in your brain because you, you, you've, you haven't been exposed to that much yet. You haven't learned that many things. But by the time you're 50, the amount of new stuff that you add to your brain in, in the next year is just a small fraction of everything. And so all of that gives rise to this sense that time is just rocketing by as you get older. You have a, a section in the book that's really interesting to me about slackers and how we perceive other people to be flakes and slackers and not very conscientious and we would never do that and how can they do that and and i think it speaks to like how we see our place in the world and uh, so talk about that 
Well, there are there are two parts to it, right? So so one of them is that we tend to judge people based on uh, a particular set of values that we have. And so some people, uh, particularly folks who are pretty conscientious, would like people to just just either do it or not do it, but let me know in advance. And so, and so there's a case where we are, we're going to judge people on the basis of whether we would have done the same kind of thing. And that's, that's a piece of what's going on. But then there's another piece that's also kind of fun, which is we have a, a lot of, of what's called an egocentric bias, which means basically we overrepresent our own influence on the world relative to everybody else's, which is why if you have a group do a project and you ask everyone the, pr- the percentage of the project that they were responsible for, uh, and then you add up that number, uh, the, the number is going to add up to way more than 100 because everyone is going to overestimate their own contribution to what happened. And so when you look at what uh, what people have done, one of the things that happens is you assume that you had a much bigger impact on results than other people did. And that ends up making you feel like, you know, you really carried the weight and everybody else was just riding on your coattails. We're talking about things that go on in your head, and I'm talking about that with psychologist Art Markman. He's a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is author of the book Brain Briefs, the answers to the most and least pressing questions about your mind. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Art, I remember hearing someone say, and it's always stuck with me, I heard them say, we judge ourselves by our intentions, and we judge other people by their actions. That, that's right. And not just their actions, but the outcomes that come from those actions. So we don't even always see all of the effort that somebody put in. We just see the results. Whereas when we see our own actions, not only do we judge our intentions, we judge the amount of effort we put in, even if we don't completely succeed at the thing that we set out to do. Whereas with somebody else, most of what we see is the outcome. And so we discount that amount of effort. By the way, that works also with with uh, how we credit other people for things that they've done. So, for example, if you if you go to a great concert and you see this amazing musician play, you you often at the end of it say, "Man, that musician is incredibly talented," and and you you call them talented because up on stage you don't really see all the work that they put in, all of the practice hours and everything that they that they had to do to achieve that amazing level of performance. And so you assume that a lot of what allowed them to 
to play the way they did was talent rather than effort. One of the interesting questions you look at is why do we why do we buy what we buy? And, and I think most people would think, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a smart guy and I sit down and I make a decision of or I'm going to buy this and not that because I'm a logical, thoughtful guy. And you're going to probably tell me that's not <laughs> that's not how we do it. You probably are a logical, thoughtful guy, but most people are actually uh, driven quite a bit by just mere familiarity to things. I mean, one of the scariest things is, uh, is the influence that advertising has on the kinds of decisions that we make and the kinds of things that we buy. There's a, a beautiful effect that, that, that was first ca- uh, categorized by a guy named Bob Zients back in the 1960s called the mere exposure effect. And what he showed was simply showing something to someone makes them like it better later. And, and you see this, for example, with music, where uh, when you first hear a song, yeah, you're not 100 percent sure how much you like it. But after you've heard it several times, suddenly uh, you, you, you like it quite a bit more. And the same thing happens with advertising. It, it really doesn't matter what the advertiser tells you about the product. M- most of the effect of advertising is just taking something and making it feel familiar. And so in the moment, When you go to a store, for example, and you're trying to figure out which of the products on the shelf you're going to buy, you will feel more warmly towards something that's been advertised because it feels familiar. And then, and here's the beauty of it, then you're going to backfill a story about why that's actually a better product. And and you see people do this, for example, with certain kinds of products that are legally mandated to be identical. So, for example, if you you go to the store and you buy an an over-the-counter cold remedy, that that cold remedy has to have a formulation uh, that fits within a particular set of FDA guidelines, which means that chances are every single brand of product that, that is that type of cold remedy actually has an identical formulation. And yet people still consistently buy the brand name products in part because those products feel familiar relative to a generic product. And so then they'll tell themselves, well, it must be higher quality. It must be a better formulation. But in fact, it's actually identical to everything else on the shelf. Something I think people universally experience is choking under pressure. And it might seem somewhat self-evident. We choke under pressure because there's pressure, but but there's got to be more to it than that. So the thing about pressure is it does it does a couple of things. One of the things that it does is it decreases the amount of what's called working memory. So working memory is the amount of information that you can hold in mind at the same time. And the less information you can hold in mind, the less complicated a decision you can make. And so the more pressure that you're experiencing at any given moment, the less information you get to take into account when you are working. And so that's one source of choking under pressure. And then there's another, which is particularly important for uh, motor skills, for actions that you're performing. So if you ever think about if if you've ever played golf or tennis or something like that, and you find in a pressure situation that suddenly you're hitting the ball terribly, one of the reasons for that is because another thing that you tend to do under pressure is to monitor your own performance. So you start paying attention to what you're doing in a way that you don't do when you're performing without pressure. Now, the thing about 
motor skills, about about movements, is that that actually paying attention to those movements tends to discoordinate those things rather than make them more coordinated. And so the more that you pay attention to your own movements, the more that you lose that coordination that's important for skilled performance, which means that when you are practicing a skill that you're going to perform under pressure, a motor skill, one of the things that you want to do is to learn to pay attention to the situation you're in rather than to the motor movement itself. So this way, if you're playing tennis or golf or something like that, you're th you, when, when you get under pressure, you start monitoring the situation rather than the performance of the skill itself. What about punishment? Does it work the way we think it works, that, that punishment deters future problems? Or, or how does the brain deal with punishment? Yeah, so the fascinating thing about punishment is it, it works depending on the time horizon you care about. So uh, punishments are, are negative things that you do to somebody that, that, that engage what's called the avoidance motivational system. And rewards, positive things that you give to people, uh, engage what's called the approach motivational system. And so, and so here's the paradox. If you want to get somebody to do something right now, it is absolutely critical that they do it right at this moment. Absolutely the best way to get somebody to do something right now is to threaten them and to, and to threaten them with a punishment or some, some, some harm. Because in the moment, people would rather do something than to, and, and, and avoid that punishment. The, the problem is that the avoidance motivational system, one of the ways that you know it's active is through the emotions you experience and, and the emotions that are associated with avoidance are fear and stress and anxiety. And nobody really enjoys experiencing fear and stress and anxiety. And so as a result, over the long term, people actually go out of their way to try to avoid situations in which they might experience fear, stress, and anxiety. And so in the long term, if you keep punishing people and you keep threatening people, they just find ways to avoid you altogether. So a workplace that's full of threats of punishment will in the moment get people to hop to it and get stuff done. But in the long term, you'll see lots of turnover and absenteeism and things like that because people don't really want to be around a lot of those punishments. Yeah. So talk about life's little nuisances and aggravations and the best way to deal with them. I've got, yeah. I've got to know this. So, man, there's, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, we, each of us has a set of pet peeves that are just things that people do that just annoy the heck out of us. And, and, you know, one of the things that we have to remember is that we, we have a tremendous amount of choice about what it is that we want to pay attention to and what kinds of information are going to influence, influence us in the future. And it, it turns out that, that when you create a mindset where you start looking for the things that bother you, you start seeing the things that bother you. Your world actually becomes more and more surrounded with the negative things that are out there in the environment because you, you get this state-dependent memory. So when you're in a negative mood and looking for negative stuff, you remember negative things, you see negative things, you start feeling badly. So that, that feeds on itself. 
And the fascinating thing is if you flip that switch and you start looking for the good things that people are doing, so you ignore those pet peeves and you actually start trying to look for better things, you begin to notice more good things in the environment. And it actually creates a situation in which people start interacting with each other in a way that starts to bring about those good things. So if you spend your time, rather than trying to be critical of everybody, if you, if you spend your time finding really good things somebody has done, then you find they're smiling at you and then you smile back and suddenly you're having a pleasant conversation. And so these things can really become a self-fulfilling prophecy in either direction. And so absolutely the best thing to do is for those things that are not going to threaten anyone's life, uh, giving those things an opportunity to just pass by without comment and focusing on the more positive things actually just makes life infinitely better almost immediately. Good advice and, and interesting insight into how the brain works in real life, in real life situations. Uh, Art Markman has been my guest. He is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. And his book is called Brain Briefs, The Answers to the Most and Least Pressing Questions About Your Mind. Thanks for joining me, Art. Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking with you again. Whenever you fly on an airplane, you probably sit in your seat and wonder about things like, how exactly does this thing fly? And is turbulence really dangerous? Why has air travel become such a hassle? Well, the person to ask those questions to is Patrick Smith. Patrick is an airline pilot and has been for some time. He's a blogger. His website is askthepilot.com. And he's the author of a book called Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel. Hi, Patrick. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. So let's start with this. Let's start with what the hell happened to air travel? (laughs) What, what, because I remember the day, I'm not that old, I remember a day when, I don't, you know, I never really looked forward to getting on an airplane, but it, it wasn't the hassle and you didn't hear the stories and what, what happened? I'm the first one to admit that air travel has become um, an undignified and in many ways uncivilized experience. It's, it's noisy, it's just generally tedious and uncomfortable and, and it's all of the things that we know, but... You can also make the argument that air travel is in a lot of ways in a golden age right now. I mean, you hear often about people referencing this uh, golden age of air travel that existed somewhere in the past, but nobody can really define where it was exactly or what it was. And in a lot of ways, I think it's it's a mythical construction and that you could actually make the argument that the golden age of flying is right now. And, And that will sound completely preposterous to people. But... Let's look at it. Affordability of flying to begin with. Flying has never been less expensive than it is now. The average airfare is about half of what it was 25 years ago, and that's after you factor in all of those ancillary fees that airlines love and people hate. I know people feel nickel and dimed by by the add-ons and fees, but in a lot of ways, they, they help keep the price down overall by letting certain people pick certain perks that not everybody wants. People don't remember, younger people especially today, how expensive flying used to be. When I was a kid in the the, the 70s and into the early 80s, 
I knew a lot of people who had never been on an airplane, and the main reason for that is because their their families couldn't afford to fly. Yeah, I remember and, that. And too. that's yeah. that's not true anymore. Pretty much everybody can afford to fly most of, or or sometimes. Then let's let's look at safety. Uh, flying has never been safer than it is right now. And you know, you go back to the '60s, the '70s, the '80s. We used to see multiple large-scale air disasters every year around the world, sometimes 10 or more of them every year. And now if there's one major accident in a year somewhere in the globe, it, it's, it's a big story. Flying is far, far safer than it used to be. It's far cheaper. And, you know, in, in some ways, and this will sound crazy, but it's, it's also more comfortable. And what do I mean by that? Well, first, if you can afford to fly in first or business class, the premium cabins on today's jetliners are more luxurious than, than they've ever been. It's, it's never been as, as swanky. And even in economy class, now you have on-demand video, seatback screens, you've got Wi-Fi. Uh, these are things that didn't exist even 10 or 15 years ago. You would have a hard time explaining to people, to some people, that after seeing some of these viral videos of fights breaking out and, and you know, really bad behavior on airplanes, that, that this is the golden age of air travel. <laughs> well, everything I just said notwithstanding, I mean, the indignities of flying are duly noted. And, uh, you know, the long security lines... Uh, the delays, uh, the congestion, um, there are a lot more planes flying nowadays. And that, that kind of segues into a point that's, I think, sort of interesting. You know, more people are flying than ever before, but we're doing it in smaller planes, making more and more departures. For airlines now, frequency, the number of flights is, is the name of the game. And that has, unfortunately, clogged up our airspace to the point where when the weather gets bad, the whole system, you know, in some cases collapses and you end up with these two, three, four, five hour delays. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. And part of that is the industry's uh, infatuation with using regional jets instead of mainline jets for so much of their flying. That's something that began uh, in earnest about 20 years ago. And the major carriers began outsourcing more and more of their domestic flying to these regional affiliates that now make up for about 50% of, of all the takeoffs and landings in the United States. You know, there's a website that I look at once in a while. It's uh, uh, flightradar24.com, and it's a flight tracker thing. And I remember the first time I looked at it, and it's, it shows airplanes in real time, what the planes are, what their destination is, uh, and, and where they are in the sky right now. And the first time I looked at it, I was shocked at how many airplanes are in the sky at any one time. I mean, I didn't even know there that there were that many airplanes. It is remarkable. And then extrapolate that globally. How many airplanes around the world are, are in the air at any one point? Well, you were saying earlier how safe air travel is and how there are very few major airline disasters, certainly far less than there used to be. But there is still this fear of of air travel or, or the fear of the safety of air travel because, you know, occasionally you do see something in the news about something. When things do happen, even comparatively minor incidents, they become spun up in the media. And, and you have so much media now across all these different platforms vying for attention that, uh, you know, a plane has a landing gear problem and, and it's, 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 a, it's a spectacle. 
and it you know it's in circulation and goes viral as they say for you know days at a time and and most of those incidents from at least from a pilot's perspective are are you know non-events i think as as passengers people are very sensitive to movement uh, abrupt movement in the plane either because of turbulence or because of the uh, of turning the plane or or so talk about that I think people would be surprised to know that even in pretty strong turbulence, even in, in very rough air, a plane is barely moving from its point in space. A lot of people seem to think the plane is plummeting uh, hundreds or even thousands of feet. And, and really, if you looked at the altimeter during turbulence, it's barely moving at all. I mean, maybe 10 feet. A plane will almost never turn at more than about 25 degrees of, of turn of bank. Yet people will swear that their plane is banking 90 degrees or, or 60 degrees or some insane number like that. Now, I'd love to bring you into a simulator or in a, an aerobatic airplane and show you what those numbers would really feel like. Um, a very steep climb in a, in a jetliner is about 20 degrees nose up. And a descent is usually uh, somewhere in the order of 2 degrees or maybe 5 degrees at most nose down. And... People hear that and they say, no way, that, that, there's no way that's true. I know my plane was going 45 degrees nose down towards the ground. It wasn't. It just wasn't. And I wish I could take you into a plane and show you that, but uh, for the time being, try to take my word for it. So, Patrick, here's something I've always wondered about. Because so, I see this in the movies a lot. So, so say I'm a passenger on the plane, and you're the pilot, and there's a co-pilot, and you've all eaten the bad fish, and you're all dead now. <laughs> and... I have to fly the plane. I'm the only qualified person to fly the plane. Could someone talk me through it, like in the movies, and I could land the plane, or would I crash and kill everybody? You would crash it. There's zero chance of you getting the plane on the ground. And, um, you know, this gets into something that is uh, one of my favorite slash least favorite things to talk about, and that's people's understanding of what cockpit automation does or more specific specifically what it doesn't do um people have a very vastly exaggerated understanding of what automation does and how pilots interact with that automation um you know there's this idea out there that planes fly themselves and the pilots are there just uh, in case something goes wrong and then they 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 jump in like captain sully and save the day uh that's that's not the way it works at all i mean the idea that an airplane flies itself is like saying that an operating room can perform an organ transplant by itself. Um, obviously, you need the uh, experience and the talent and the expertise of, of the doctor, and the same uh, goes for the, the, the pilot in the cockpit. And I think you'd be amazed at how busy a cockpit becomes, even with all of the automation on. You know, more than 99% of landings are, are, you know, hands-on. I don't want to use the word old-fashioned. It's just the way they are. Um, and 100% of takeoffs are, are hands-on. There's no such thing in any, anywhere in commercial aviation as an automatic takeoff. Is it hard to land a plane? I mean, if you've done it as a pilot a million times, is the next one really that hard? Or is it like driving a car where after you've done it for several years, it's pretty easy for you? Well, ask a doctor if uh, a particular operation is easy. I, I think what you're getting at is that Things become routine. I think routine is, is a good word. Better that than... doesn't mean anybody could do it or that it's easy, but if you're a professional trained to do that task, then uh, at a certain point it kind of comes natural. 
What are the other things that people ask you about the most? I've always been surprised at how many people are put off by turbulence, by rough air. Yeah, uh, nervous flyers, anxious flyers, uh, especially. But it wasn't until I started writing and fielding questions from the traveling public that I realized what um, a big deal turbulence was for so many flyers. Because, uh, you know, from our perspective, from the pilot's point of view, you know, we see it as, as a comfort and convenience issue, not as a, a safety issue per se. The number of airplanes that have crashed due to turbulence in and of itself uh, in the whole history of commercial aviation can, can be counted on one hand. Um, and I, I don't want to downplay it too much, though, because every year, yeah, a certain number of passengers are injured um, by rough air, but normally because they're not sitting down with their seatbelts on when they're supposed to be. But as a pilot, when when the plane hits turbulence and it does that thing where it just feels like it drops and all, do you mm-hmm. as are you as the pilot concerned like oh we need to do something about this or do you just like ride ride through it knowing that this will work out? For pilots, a turbulence encounter is a very hands off thing. Uh, you're not fighting the turbulence so much as just letting it run its course and the plane. Uh, you know, kind of rumbles through it, but um, you know, there, there there isn't this this plummeting, and there isn't this wrestling with the controls. You know, turbulence moves you one way, and you you fight it back the other way. No, it it doesn't happen that way. It's it's very hands off, and and planes are stable to the point where anytime they're disturbed from their position in space by their nature, they want to go back to where they were. So the plane can more or less just ride through turbulence on its own. We're not gripping the wheel. We're not we're not fighting it. I remember hearing that uh, this came as a, somewhat as a surprise to me that it takes longer now to fly, uh, let's say, coast to coast, because the airplanes have been slowed down by policy in order to save fuel. The, the typical jetliner actually flies a little bit slower than uh, was the case uh, 40 or 50 years ago, believe it or not, but that's in the name of efficiency. Um, just the planes are designed to fly more efficiently and use, use less fuel. But normally if you're, if you're slowed down flying cross country, it's because of air traffic constraints. There are just so many planes and traveling at slightly different speeds. So if you're behind one airplane that's at such and such a speed, you may have to slow down slightly, um, to preserve the, the choreography of, of, you know, which planes are on which routes. Uh, sometimes there's flexibility, but sometimes air traffic control just assigns you a speed because that, that's all they can do because of the volume of planes. Oh, so, so air traffic control tells you how fast or slow to fly? Sometimes, yes. And how much pressure is, is put on pilots to, to get, off, get out of that gate on time and land that plane on time? Well, it's not pilot specifically. It's um, it's the whole team. It's it's the gate staff and the flight attendants and the pilots and the ground crew. You know, uh, sure, we're under some pressure to get the aircraft off on time. I think uh, the last statistics I saw, industry wide in the U.S., something like 85% of flights arrive on time. And considering how many flights are now being pushed through the system, that's that's a pretty good number. And of of course, though that. The numbers will vary region to region. Some airports are just notoriously more delay-prone than others. As a pilot, you don't typically, I imagine, have a lot of contact uh, and a lot of time to have contact with passengers. But 
But but what do you like to hear? I mean, do you like to hear people go, hey, good landing, or hey, nice takeoff? I mean, is there anything that, like, pumps you up and like, yeah, I did, I did well today? Oh, any any compliment or any just smile and a thank you. And and by the way, passengers are more than welcome to come up to the cockpit and, and say hello and uh, maybe get a little tour uh, any point at any point before or after the flight. Um, you know, no, you can't come up during the flight, as was the case in the old days. But uh, as long as things aren't too hectic or too busy bef- before the flight, you're, you're more than welcome to, to come on up and have a look around. Really? You like also, that's not a bother to you? Yeah, you know, there's there's a disconnect. You're in the cockpit. You're you're physically separated from the cabin. Uh, so to to have that interaction uh, in a lot of cases just just feels nice. What is the difference between the pilot and the co-pilot? Are they equally qualified? And and why is one the co-pilot and one the pilot? This is one of those kind of perpetual misunderstandings that people have. The idea that there is the pilot. And then the co-pilot, who is, you know, maybe somehow not a real pilot. <laughs> um, and that's, that's not the case. I mean, I'm a co-pilot. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a first officer. Uh, colloquially, we, we say co-pilot. But both of the, the people in the cockpit, and there are always at least two, are full-fledged pilots who are qualified to operate the airplane in every regime of flight. The captain has uh, the ultimate responsibility and the bigger check to go with that. But we both essentially have the same duties, and we both fly the airplane. If you're, say, flying from New York to Chicago to Los Angeles, the one pilot will be the hands-on control pilot for the the first leg, and then the other pilot will be the hands-on control pilot for the the, the second leg, performing the takeoff and the landing. The co-pilots take off and land airplanes all the time. So when you go on a flight, when do you get to the airport, and do you, as, as a pilot or a first officer, do you really inspect the plane, or do you leave that to the people that do that? Or what, what's your, prior to the plane leaving the gate, what is it you do? Great question. And like so many things in aviation, it, it, it depends. It varies. So one of the big variables here is, uh, are you doing a short-haul domestic flight or a long-haul international flight? For a Short haul, run of the mill domestic flight. Uh, you know, I like to be at the airplane somewhere around an hour before departure. There are uh, there are a series of checks that we run through. Uh, the maintenance personnel also run through a separate series of checks and and inspections. So it's uh, different things are going on, and different different personnel are are performing those checks and tests. Um, there's paperwork to go through and review that sort of thing. Uh, for an international flight, uh, my carrier, our requirement is to be present an hour and a half before departure. And we typically go to a, a briefing room where we have little cubicles set up where we go through the, the, the flight plan page by page, looking at the route and charting it out on a map and all that sort of thing. Uh, there, there's a lot of paperwork involved. And also on the longer flights, any flight at my carrier anyway, over eight hours, we bring three pilots. We'll have a captain and two co-pilots, two first officers. And then once we're in the air, we work in shifts. So one pilot will be on break with always a minimum of two pilots in the cockpit. And then on even longer flights, we'll bring four pilots and work in teams of two. Well, it's so interesting. And it's what I think people wonder about all the time when they fly is, you know, kind of what's going on behind the scenes. And I appreciate you filling in those blanks. Patrick Smith has been my guest. He is an airline pilot. And he has a website called askthepilot.com. 
And the name of his book is Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel. And there is a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Patrick. Okay. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So think for a moment, are there people in your life that you would consider irritating? Well, if so, you might want to limit your exposure to them. Researchers at the University of Southern California say annoying people could be messing up your brain. Whether we realize it or not, we tend to mirror the people we're interacting with. And if the person you're interacting with is a jerk, it throws our brain a curveball. When we're around people we don't like or who are different than us, our brains actually slow down in a mental act of protest. The good news is the brain damage is temporary. Not only will you get back to normal when the jerk leaves your life, your brain activity can actually speed up and improve by interacting with someone you really like. And that is something you should know. Please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and the episodes are delivered right to your phone or other device so you never miss one. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.